Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Genesis chapter 26, we read together from verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, or 40 years old he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Besimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them back to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate, 
and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, too, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't, it rightly na- isn't it he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all his relatives and servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his, you will throw his yoke off from your neck. <clears throat> Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the, the women of this land from Hittite, if Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, 
do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Neboeth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Well, Fred, thank you so much for reading that bumper reading for us, and well done with all the names as well. Welcome. It's great to see you here this evening. Do keep that passage from Genesis open in front of you. We're going to be digging into this gripping story from the history of God's people, a real historical account, uh, in just a moment. Uh, before we do, um, two things to mention. Uh, one is that uh, in amongst the bundle of stuff you've got, there's a little handout. If you're a scribbler, you might find that helpful to be able to to just put some notes down on the way through. And um, I'm just going to pray for us, is the other thing, for God to help us as we dig in together, that we'd understand it and that we'd see more of his character and promises through it. And so let's pray together now. Our Father God, your word says that all of these Old Testament accounts were written for our instruction. And so we pray that this evening, by your Holy Spirit, you would please teach us Show us more of your character, your promises, and your son, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Well, can we trust God to keep his promises? That's the question that this passage from Genesis 27 and the little bit on the beginning and the end raises for us. Can we trust God to keep his promises when the evidence of our eyes and ears seem to scream the opposite at us? So just think for a moment. God has promised that he will gather to himself a great multitude of people rescued by the Lord Jesus from every tribe and tongue and nation praising him. And yet think for a moment about the evidence of our eyes and ears. How often, as we go to speak to our friends about our good Lord Jesus, are we met with um, indifference or even sometimes hostility to speaking about our faith? And we might think about some of the statistics. If you were here last week, around 2% of people in our region go to church on any given Sunday, which means there are 1.2 million people who think little of God and his promises at the moment. Um, I think of a friend at uh, the last church that I was at. He'd been coming along to the Christianity Explored course 
that we, um, that we ran at the church. We, we run the same course here at Christ Church Forward. And let me just say, as an aside, if you're here and you're really looking into the Christian faith, you're weighing up the evidence for yourself, let me commend that course to you. Uh, we'll be running another one, I think, just after Easter, and the dates will come up quite soon uh, in the notice sheet. Um, that would be a great place to go and weigh the evidence. Uh, he'd come along to that course. He'd been to another course as well. He'd really been thinking seriously about things, and we were chatting um, one evening, and he said, Andy, I, I think I believe it. I, I mean, I think I'm convinced by the evidence for Jesus, but, you know, the thing that's holding me back is that so few other people I know seem to believe it. You know, the guys at work don't trust in Jesus. The, um, the people at the school gate don't. It's just a few people at church. Can I really trust these promises when so few seem to believe them? It's really the question that this passage raises for us. Can we trust God to keep his promises when the evidence of our eyes and ears seems to scream the opposite? God has promised that he'll take us to a perfect place, a restored new creation where there's no more crying or pain or suffering or death anymore. And yet you open up the news app on your phone and it's another terrorist attack in another part of the world or another plane crash or more human suffering. And, and we find it hard to believe sometimes, don't we, that God will bring us to a perfect, restored and renewed creation Can we trust him to keep his promises? And that is the question that this passage raises. It's a gripping story, isn't it, this historical account? At one level, it is the tense and tragic tale of a family's inheritance. The story turns on the family blessing. You know, in the ancient world, if you're near to death as the head of the family, you sit all of your children down and you hand out the family blessing to them. It's a sort of legal ceremony to hand out the inheritance to the next generation. And at one level, Genesis 27 is the story of the family blessing, isn't it? There's a lot of skullduggery. There's a real rogues gallery of people who want to try and get the blessing. And the tension at the heart of the story is who will get the family blessing? Will it be Esau or will it be Jacob? And at one level, that's the story that we're reading this evening. But there's another level, a deeper level, that means that it's significant for you and me three and a half thousand years or so later, and that is that the blessing that we're dealing with when we look at this family is God's blessing to humanity. You see, um, the Bible says that human beings were made to enjoy a relationship of blessing with our creator, that we were made for perfect relationship with him in his perfect place, under, under his blessing, but that human beings have rejected God, that we didn't want him to be God over us. We wanted to do it our way, and so instead of his blessing, we experience his curse. We're cut off from him under his judgment. But God promised a man called Abraham that he would reverse the curse on people and the curse on the world, that one of Abraham's descendants would be a rescuer who would restore God's people into a relationship with him, who would give them the certainty of that perfect place and a restored relationship with God, blessing. And in Genesis 25, God has told um, Isaac and Rebekah, that it will be through Jacob 
that that descendant will come. And so at the heart of this story is not just the question of who will get some family inheritance, but can God keep his promise to rescue and to bless when the human actors in the story do everything that they can to mess it up and to co-opt the plan for themselves in one way or another? Can God be trusted to keep his promises? It's a gripping story, isn't it? Let's, let's dive in. Uh, what we're going to do, we'll work through the scenes of the story together for a few minutes, and then I've got two lessons for us from the story this evening. So let's dive in together. And scene one, we're reintroduced to Isaac and to Esau. Have a look down at verse 34 with me at the end of Genesis 26. Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, if you've been here with us um, over the last few weeks as we've been getting into Genesis together, I wonder how you would cast Esau. We know from Genesis 25 that he's a big guy, he's hairy, he's got red hair. I sort of picture him like a kind of cross between an international rugby player and Hagrid from Harry Potter. That's the kind of guy we're casting here. And we also know from Genesis 25 that Esau is a man who sat light to God's promises and God's word. Do you remember that? If you were here, Genesis 25, Esau comes in, he's hungry, he sees that Jacob is making some red stew, and he's so hungry that he's willing to trade his birthright, the right to receive this blessing that we're reading about this evening, he's willing to trade that in order to get some of the stew. You know, if you remember chapter 25, verse 30, literally Esau said, I want some of the red stuff. Give me the red stuff. And frankly, the promises of God can wait for Esau. Esau is a man who finds the pleasures of the world far more appealing than the promises of God. He's a man driven by his desires. And we see at the beginning of our, our, our um, section this evening that what was true then was not an isolated incident, but the pattern of Esau's life. Because in the two verses we've just read, we see that he marries these two Hittite women. And if you've been with us, you'll know that Abraham's family were supposed to marry within his own tribe. You see it at the end of the story, don't you? as Jacob is sent off to Paddan Aram to find a wife who's not a Hittite. And here is a man uh, for whom it's not just I want some of the red stuff, but I want some of the Hittite women as well. And God and his word and his promises can wait because I want and he takes. Here's Esau, a man who sat light to the promises of God a man driven by his appetites. And then we have Isaac, his father. And I wonder how you'd cast Isaac. Uh, Have a look down at 27 verse 1 for a moment. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his oldest son, and and he makes this plan with him. My son, here I am. Uh, I'm an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Get your weapons. Verse 4, prepare me some of the tasty food I like and bring it in to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. I wonder how you'd cast him. 
Maybe one of the, the great Shakespearean actors, you know, Kenneth Branagh or someone like that. You know, he's, he's old, he can hardly see anymore. That's going to be important in the story, isn't it? Uh, at one moment, he seems sort of confused, out of it, almost senile at the next moment, strangely shrewd as he interrogates Isaac, uh, as he interrogates Esau. And Isaac... Well, Isaac knows that God's blessing is worth everything, but he wants it his way. He wants it on his terms. He knows the blessing is worth everything, but he doesn't think much of the one that God has promised that he'll give it through and to. Because you see, Isaac loves Esau, and so he cooks up this plan. Instead of getting all of the family there and handing out the blessings... He's going to get Esau to come in secret. Bring me some of the food I like, and I'll give you the blessing in the, on, on the quiet. I'll sign it over to you, and maybe no one finds out for a little bit. You'll get the blessing. He's, he's actually, he's quite Esau-like in the way that he's described, isn't he? Like father, like son. Notice how many times in this chapter that the stew, the tasty food is mentioned. See, here is a man who knows that God's promise is worth everything, but who wants it on his terms, along with his appetites and desires. You know, if we find Isaac hard to sympathize with in this story, just think for a moment how easy it is to know that we want God's promises and his blessing, but to say, that sin in my life Surely it doesn't matter that much. When Jesus says, repent and follow me, give up your life and follow me, he can't mean that. He must be okay with that relationship, that pattern of secret sin, to want God's blessing, but, but on his own terms. And so he cooks up this plan with Esau, scene one. Uh, scene two, we're, um, we're reintroduced to Rebecca and to Jacob, and um, I wonder how you'd cast Rebecca. Um, she certainly, she's a woman with her ear pressed to other people's doors, isn't she? She keeps hearing other people's plans. You sort of, you imagine the men in the story pacing about in their tent and grumbling under their breath, I know what I'm going to do. And Rebecca's just there sort of at the door, just listening in or something like that. But she's also, she's the first tiger mum in the Bible, did you spot that? Because where, where Isaac loves Esau, Rebekah loves Jacob. Just look at verse 5 with me. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back. Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, look what I overheard your father saying. Do you notice that? They're twins. They have the same parents, and yet Esau is his son, and Jacob is hers. And she will do anything to make sure that her son is the one who gets the blessing. You see, Rebecca knows that God's blessing is worth everything, but she doesn't trust God to keep his promise. She doesn't trust the means that God has provided. But she doesn't... Um, Go to Isaac and remind him of God's word of promise that it'll come through Jacob. She doesn't pray to the Lord and trust him with the situation. No, she cooks up a plan to deceive her elderly husband. 
and she gets Jacob involved in that plan. She knows the promise is worth everything, but she doesn't trust God to keep the promise. And then there's Jacob, and he's no fool, is he, in this scene? But he's just like his mum. Have a look at verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I'd appear to be tricking him. And we, we want to say, Jacob, mate, you would be tricking him, okay? I'd appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Jacob gets that this is a high-stakes plan, but there's no question of whether it's right or wrong to deceive his elderly dying father. Mum, this is a very risky plan, and we're left thinking, is he going to get the blessing as God promised, or is it all going to go pear-shaped and he ends up under God's curse? And Rebecca talks him round. She kits him out with uh, Esau's best clothes. He's got goat skins on his arms and on his neck. I mean, goodness knows what he looks like. It's a good thing that Isaac was short, you know, nearly blind. And, um, and he goes in brandishing some of the stew, some of Isaac's favorite food. And scene three is tense. Do you feel the tension as we get to verse 18, he went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And we're thinking, is Esau going to come crashing through the door at any minute? Is Isaac going to realize that this is actually Jacob? Is he going to end up cursed? And the tension ramps up because we're brought to the precipice four times in this scene, aren't we? Verse 18, who is it? Verse 20, how did you find the game so quickly, my son? Verse 21, come near so that I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And fair play to Isaac, he's not easily fooled, is he? Verse 24, are you really my son Esau? And of course, Jacob lies and lies and lies and lies. He's well named, we hear later in the passage. He's a deceiver, a con man. He lies to his father. And worst of all, he co-opts God in his lie in verse 20. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. And yet... And yet Isaac's desires, his appetites, get the better of him. And so he has Jacob um, hand him the stew. And then he has Jacob come close to him. And when he smells him, he gives him the blessing in verses 27 to 29. And so here we see God keeps his promise. Jacob receives the blessing. It will come through him. And the rest of the story is consequences. Did you notice that in scenes four, five, and six? The rest of the story is all consequences. Have a look at verse 32. Uh, Sorry, verse 30. After Isaac finished blessing him right away, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. His brother Esau came in from hunting. He brings the food. He tells his father to sit up. And in verse 32, Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. 
And verse 33, Isaac trembled violently. Literally, he trembled a great trembling and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. Why is Isaac trembling so violently? Is it fear? Is it fury? Is he frustrated that his plan has failed? We don't know, but he has signed over the blessing to Jacob and not to Esau as he'd planned. He wanted God's blessing, but he wanted it his way, and the plan of God was not to be frustrated. And then there's Esau's reply, and Esau's reaction is poignant. It's full of pathos. Any son who's ever longed for their father's approval cannot help but feel their heart torn by the words of Esau. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Again, verse 37, I've made him lord over you and made all his relatives his servants and I've sustained him with my grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept aloud. And here are consequences because he sat light to the promise of God. And the blessing that he gets is not quite a curse, but it's not much of a blessing, is it? You'll be a slave to your brother and occasionally you'll rebel against him. Scene four. At scene five, and we're back with Rebecca and Jacob, and we're back with Rebecca sending Jacob to do things. And in scene five, in case we think that Rebecca and Jacob came out of this story the winners, we see that there are terrible consequences for them as well. Verse 41 Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so Rebekah sends Jacob away to keep him safe. And you see, the consequences of their lack of trust in God, of their sin, are painful for them both. You'll have to come back over the coming weeks to see how it plays out in the book of Genesis. But just to give you a little taster, Rebecca will never see the son that she loves again in the rest of her life, as far as we know. And Jacob will slave away for his uncle Laban for about two decades and be deceived by him. Jacob's sins will find him out. And so in case we're tempted to think that their sin and their lies work out okay, scene five reminds us that whenever there is sin, people get hurt and the consequences are terrible. But scene six, God has kept his promise and Jacob is sent away with the blessing promised to Abraham. Verse four, May, God, may Almighty God give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. And you see, in the mess, 
despite the sin, despite the opposition of Isaac and Esau, God keeps his promise. And the plan to bless the world continues. So look, what do we learn from this story? I mean, it is, it's a gripping and a tense tale, isn't it? But what has it got to teach us? Two lessons, two applications for us this evening. The first one is that God's plan to bless cannot be stopped. There are no human actors, no opponents, no weak and failing human beings who can prevent God from keeping his promise to rescue a people for himself. Uh, The promise to Abraham in Genesis is a breathtaking promise, a great people restored into perfect relationship with God in his perfect place. It's a promise that finds its full fruit in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue a people to himself. It's a promise that people have always, always stood in opposition to in one way or another, but nothing and no one will stop God from being faithful to his promise. And let me tell you, that is something that as Christian believers today, we know with a certainty and a fullness and a clarity that the people in Genesis 27 could only dream of and long for because we've seen the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about the death of Jesus. It was the height of human wickedness and opposition to the purpose of God. It was the true darkest hour of the human race. God came to earth and lived among us. And what did we do with him? We killed him. We murdered him on a cross. The authorities and the crowds conspired together to have Jesus judicially murdered a moment of horrid wickedness and opposition to God. Proof positive that mankind will murder their maker given half a chance. And yet it's as Jesus dies on the cross, that moment of opposition and darkness, that moment of failure, because all his followers fled and left him all by himself, It was then on the cross that Jesus bore the curse. He bore the judgment for the ways that we've rejected God on himself in his body on the cross so that the blessing of God, that restored relationship with him might be available to anyone who trusts him. And you see, um, the book of Acts says that um, as As human beings conspired against Jesus, as the authorities in the crowds murdered him, Acts 4.28 says, they did what God's power and will decided beforehand should happen. See, not that they weren't responsible for it, but that God is in control and nothing can stop him from keeping his plan, keeping his promise and plan to bless humanity. And we've seen that with such stark clarity. The Apostle Paul, uh, in the letter to the Romans, reflects on uh, this story of Jacob and Esau to explain why it is that as the message of Jesus rings out in the world, some of the people you most expected to believe it 
the nation of Israel at the time rejected it, and some of the most unlikely people you could imagine accepted it. And Paul says, look, he's the God of Jacob and Esau, the sovereign God, the God who's in charge, and no opposition No surprises, no unexpected faithlessness can stop him from keeping his promise to bring in a great people from all nations to receive his blessing. Look, there are discouragements, aren't there, in the Christian life? Um, There are discouragements outside the church. God has made great promises, and yet we do see opposition You talk to people about um, loving Jesus Christ, and in some cases they're indifferent, in others they're hostile. Wonderfully, in some, they're fascinated. But so often it can feel discouraging and small and weak. But look, there is no amount of opposition to the promise of God that can stop him bringing his blessing to the people he's promised it to There are discouragements within the church as well, aren't there? You know, you look around the church, if you're part of it for any time at all, and you do see Christians who are not growing as fast as we long that they would or nearly as changed by the gospel as as we hope they would, and Christians hurt one another, uh, and we see faithlessness, and we see worldliness, and, oh, it can be discouraging. And, uh, And then we look inside, and it's even worse because I'm not growing as quickly or as much as I long to. And often I don't trust God nearly as much as I should. And God's plan to bless cannot be stopped. In his mercy, he's chosen a people for himself and he will keep his promise to us. In all the mess, in all the sin and opposition, despite the plans of people... God will save a people for himself. But listen, just as I close, there's a second lesson to learn from this story. And just as God's plan cannot be stopped, we also see in this passage that God cannot be mocked. God can't be bluffed. He can't be fooled. See, lest we walk away from this chapter thinking, well, look, all the characters are rat bags. It really doesn't matter how I live. Remember Esau. Esau, who wanted stew and women now and worry about the promise of God later, who treated the word and promise of God lightly. Esau, who said to himself, I'll be able to deal with God when the moment comes, but now give me the red stuff. Give me the world. And the Bible warns us, as we look at Esau, that his destiny is the destiny of anyone who spends a lifetime exercising their responsible human will against the certain promises of God. You see, God will keep his promise. Don't be like Esau and stand against it lest we be left weeping on the sidelines. Just flip forward to Hebrews chapter 12 with me, if you wouldn't mind. And um, I'll give you a page number in just a second. Uh, Page 1211, right at the back of your Bibles, 1211. Hebrews 12 and verse 
14, and I'll just read from there. It says this, Hebrews 12, 14, on page 1211. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind. That is to say, he couldn't repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. Does he remember, we've seen that Esau's rejection of the promise of God was a lifetime pattern. He was a man who longed for the red stuff here and now, and the promises of God can wait for another day. And this story is a warning to us not to be like Esau. God will keep his promise, so don't stand against him or against the promise. Let me say just a word to you here this evening if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and and you're looking into Christian things. Can I encourage you this evening, whatever you do, don't delay finding out whether the gospel is true. Don't put it off. Don't say to yourself, there's some red stuff that I want right now and I'll sort out the things of Jesus later on. I'll work out whether it's all true. So often I talk to people and the stuff that they're tied up in, they say, well, I'll think about God another day because right now I need to sort out my career, that relationship, popularity, whatever it is. Don't be like Esau. Don't say, I want the red stuff now and let the promises of God wait because it might be too late. But notice that Hebrews 12, the writer applies this truth to those who are Christians. The writer to the Hebrews speaks to us, professing Christian believers, and says, it's possible to have accepted Christ, but deep inside myself, to hunger more for the red stuff. To be part of the church, but to repeatedly sit light to the promises of God and think, I want the desires of the world now. And do you see, the mark of a real Christian is choosing Jesus over the red stuff. The warning of Esau is to say, don't think that how you live doesn't matter. Don't despise the promise of God. Trust it. Line up with Jesus Christ. Whatever the cost And whatever it is in this world that you need to turn away from, God's promise to bless will not be stopped and he won't be mocked. We can't bluff him. We can't turn up and blag it on the night. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gripping and vivid narrative of your faithfulness in the world. We pray that this evening and each day of our lives, you would help us to be those who trust in your power to keep your promises and trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
in his name. Amen.